Welcome to the Reinventing Education. Welcome to the Reinventing Education. John, just say the intro, John. Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for anybody who is interested in reinventing what education is. Let's be honest, the purpose of this is kind of fan in the title. I'm Rob McLeod, and as always, joined by Brendan O'Leary. O'Leary. How are you today, Brendan? How are you? Not too shabby. What's new in the, the world of O'Leary? Nothing major. The Osaka Weihnachtsmarkt has opened. The Christmas market? The Christmas market. So you can get some of those crunchy nuts that are covered in sugar. I don't know what they're called, but they're... The glue vine. Pretty damn delicious. So... Zusenus? No, that can't be what it smells. Zusenusen. Dr. Susan's Nusens. <laughs> That's what I believe they're called. But all in all, all in all decent. Good. Yeah. Yourself? I'm good. School-wise, uh, tried a new experiment this week. I've deconstructed the writer's workshop process. So in my school, in the high school, a number of the grade 11 and 12 students want to write their Cambridge exams, either their C1 or C2 exams. And uh, I had been asked by the school to help students prepare for this with two sessions a week during lunch breaks. And I did this last year, and it seemed to go really well. All of the students successfully passed their exams. This year, there were far more students interested, and far more students signed up. And I thought, how can I make this more convenient for students? Because I don't want this to become one extra English class that they're doing. They're already, the, f- the final two years of your German schooling are very full on. So I have created little videos of all the little lessons that I would do in the session. And students can basically check them out on and work through them at their own pace, which is kind of neat because, yeah, students could show up. I could do a little lesson about things in person, but they can't rewind me in person, whereas they can rewatch these videos if necessary, check them out at home on their own time, check out, you know, if they do have some big tests, they don't have to stress out that missing a session with me is going to cause them to get behind on their Cambridge preparation. And all this is being done as well because it frees me up during that time to not waste my time teaching. I can just have that full 45-minute block to sit with students one-on-one and give them direct feedback on their writing and uh, next steps in terms of what they need to do for their Cambridge preparation. So that's pretty exciting to see. It was interesting to, to roll in there and say, hey, here's the link. I've emailed you the PDF with all the resources. Uh, go to it. And then essentially for the next 45 minutes, students with headphones on, staring at their phones, making a few notes, and then talking to me. It was a it was an interesting educational experience. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I know you told me about this, and I really like the way because the flipped classroom or Khan Academy have, have done this idea with the videos. But I really like the way you've taken each element, and you're saying, well, I I don't need to be here for this. I can be here for this. Is the I'm best served by doing this, and clearly you are best served by having that one-to-one time with students that you can't get that any other way and you have that knowledge and skills to guide them and coach them. So I really like that kind of setup and system. I had the parents in, we got about 25 parents in and we gave them a uh, an information session on the writer's workshop. So these were from grade one to grade six. And yeah, I ran through all the overviews of the, of the workshop model and we got them up and did a few practices and we showed them what uh, conferring looks like when you're speaking one-to-one, which again, I stress this is the most important part. Really, in many ways, this is where you get that that gold. So yeah, very interesting. We're, we're plugging away at that in our own ways. 
And if anyone's been listening to this going like, writer's workshop, I don't know what that is. I guess the 10 second thing is basically to say, you're teaching students a process for writing. So how do you come up with ideas? How do you draft them? How do you revise them, edit them, and then finally publish them? And the idea is you kind of focus on one text type at a time. So maybe story writing or essay writing, whatever the text type is, and you talk through, you know, what makes a good what makes a good story? What are the components? And then students are writing and you're meeting with students one-on-one. It's not brain surgery or rocket science or anything like that. It's just... Basically, you give students time to write and meet with as many of them one-on-one as you can to talk about their writing, as opposed to like scribbling notes all over it that students either don't read or if they do, maybe don't understand what you're trying to suggest. And uh, it's also nice, I've found, just to develop those student relationships to have some time throughout the day to, to actually talk one-on-one with a student. So that's, that's what it is. That's my 10-second summary that took, I think, 28 seconds. And I think now is the time to do one of the, uh, the anti... What were they called? What were those advertisements called that you brought in last time? The reverse sponsorship. The reverse sponsorship. Because the anti-advertisement, I'm sure that's bad, right? That's like saying bad stuff about... It's like the man grill. <laughs> no, McDonald's man grill. If you don't know what that is, go go watch the man grill commercial. But um, The man great. Uh, the man great. No, McDonald. It's a hilarious clip. But no, not an anti-advertisement, but a reverse advertisement or reverse sponsorship. And so I would like to give a shout out to... Lucy Calkins and, and the Teachers College at Columbia University, New York, who developed this Readers and Writers Workshop program, used it for many years, it is a really cool way to teach writing and reading. So if you're a teacher and you don't know much about it, please look further into the uh, Readers and Writers Workshop program. program. Big big. Cool. And my shout out, a reverse sponsorship this week, goes out to Zachary Stein. I'm currently reading his book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, Essays on the Future of Schools, Technology, and Society. And I'm maybe a third of the way through this book. I'm taking my time with it because it's incredibly rich. And I we I feel we should get this guy on our podcast because it's really interesting. He's, I think he's essentially saying all the things you and I are about sort of the needs to address, you know, this kind of VUCA world we say we're entering of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and he's kind of making the case that with technology, with social change, with economic change, all these sorts of things, we're, we're entering a new world that's not quite here yet, but it's going to be founded on a lot of different principles. And I guess whether or not you take that thesis on, or that prediction as being accurate, I still think his work holds up as being very relevant to talk about education. So I've seen some of his YouTube talks, I've heard him on other podcasts, Zachary Stein, Education in a Time Between Worlds, Essays on the Future of Schools, Technology, and Society. Really well worth reading. I feel essentially he's saying most of the same things you and I are, but I think he's just coming at it from a slightly different perspective. I think you and I are coming at it from the school focus and then rippling out to society, and his take is kind of coming from the society focus and narrowing that back to school. Hope to be able to talk to this guy on our show at some point. Yeah, it sounds it sounds cool. We talked about it a little and uh, has some connections to Illich that we've talked about before and his or de-schooling society. So yeah, I will hopefully get around to checking that out. So let's move on towards a little segment, hopefully to give people an overview of what we are trying to do here. And we called it in... Because it's a snappy title. 
It's my turn this week, Rob. If you would guide me through the headings, I will do my best to lay out our plans and our schemes in this area. So whenever you're ready. Yeah, so whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, basically everything Brennan and I are going to discuss on this podcast is coming from this framework that we've been developing slowly over the last 30 or so episodes. So we got a few pieces of our map that we use. So the first one being the aims of education or the aims of school. What are the three aims of education? Three aims of education are to build citizenship, to prepare people for work, and to grow them as humans. And of course, every approach to school believes that we want the best for people and believes we know the best way to meet those three aims. However, once you actually get into schools, you realize that things are done differently in different places. So how we go about accomplishing those three aims can look very different. And Brennan and I are saying that is to do with different value systems. So if you are into integral theory or the work of Frederick Leloux or the work of spiral dynamics, these stages will probably sound pretty familiar to you. What are the four values that we say impact what education looks like? One of those would be focusing on security, another on opportunity, a third on inclusion. And we are saying there is a fourth value that aims to integrate all of those previous three in relation to the context. And if we want to talk about education or we want to talk about school, we need to be able to split it up into some different components or different aspects. So what are the eight different aspects of school that we can address. There are the beliefs and reactions of the individuals inside the school. We're also saying there is the culture and the community itself. There is the activities and resources that you would find in the school. And there are also the systems and the overall environment. And each of these will give you a different perspective on the issues inside the school. And one last point about those aspects. It's kind of like these are the eight things that are influencing what's happening in a school. And if you don't have your attention on all eight, you can almost be guaranteed that the one you're not paying attention to is the one that's going to come and bite you. You know, we're talking about reinventing education. If you want to make change in a school, you kind of need to have all eight of those aspects online. If you don't address change in all eight of those aspects, one of those will come back to fight you. So there is our map. Thanks, Brennan, for doing that in a nutshell. Yeah, so what we have done so far this season is we've decided to look at one of those values and we built an imaginary school and we visited it and we talked through what that might look like. So if you want to look back at the first few episodes from season four, you will find us visiting an imaginary school that focuses on the value of security. Now, you might call this a traditional school. It's a place where you may see a lot of talk of duty, a lot of talk of self-discipline, a lot of talk of tradition and lineage. Please go back and feel free to check those out. What we're doing now is we're kind of unpacking what we saw there and we're trying to comment on it. We're going to say, what are the babies, as we say, the things that we would like to keep even in 2019 from this very traditional kind of school system? What are some of the things that we, we may see as bathwater, as in they really don't seem to hold up in 2019 in our current context? And hopefully we can throw in a few practical ways that you may deal with issues and problems inside your school or ways that you can make change inside your school using some of these ideas. So as Brendan said, we've already looked at several different 
things within this visit to a security or traditional school. Where we left off last time was the day of school was just about to start and students are entering and showing up promptly just before the bell rings. And the expectation here is that all students, you know, show up in a line. Things are very orderly. People are saying good morning. Where is this a good context? Well, this is a good context where like self-discipline and reliability are valued. And I, th I think that that's a baby moving forward. I don't think you'll find too many people looking at education, looking at school and saying, yeah, we don't want reliable people and we don't want people with self-discipline. I think it, it, where this becomes controversial is how do you instill self-discipline in someone and how do you build the habits that make someone reliable? So Bren and I, we had discussed this and we were trying to think, is this a baby or is this bathroom? water is coming into school quietly in a line in an orderly way how could we say this is a bad thing and we're i think you and i kind of agreed this is sort of a neutral thing we could do this but is there really anything gained by it i think that was the key it's so if you walked into a school and every student was walking up the stairs saying good morning to everybody and orderly walking into their classroom there's not really a way you would say oh this is awful however you might say well all these people have their own individual personalities and their own take on things? Why are they all acting like automatons? Why are they all marching up the stairs in line? Out? Aren't they questioning whether, uh, what are they losing by not kind of just chatting and essentially being in a much more relaxed state as they go up into their classroom? I think that was where we start in 2019 to kind of ask that question. It's like, sure, it's these students, they're very reliable. They have that self-discipline. Let's assume it's been nurtured in a positive way. The students are doing it. They're on board with it. They feel like this is the right thing for them to do. However, still, is there a need to remove those opportunities for them to interact as more authentic humans? Don't we gain something by allowing them that kind of, that freedom? We don't particularly lose anything as a school. It doesn't necessarily mean that we lose their reliability and self-discipline. We would see it in many, many other ways. And we would assume they're still following the basic rules and respectful behavior of the school. It's just that they're doing it in a far more laid back and relaxed way. Yeah, and the, the only way I can make a bit of a case for this maybe being a baby that we want to consider saving is it is a good strategy against the impulsive behaviors that would make this time of day unsafe. So I'm imagining students coming into school and let's say they're, you know, students have to go up a staircase. Impulsivity on a staircase is usually a dangerous thing, especially when you're dealing with like younger kids. And I meant by impulsivity, I mean like the kid who wants to run ahead of somebody or the kid, you know, who's kind of like pushing or body checking somebody or yelling or screaming or doing something unpredictable. And in our value systems, as I alluded to, you know, we're basing those off Spiral Dynamics or Frederick Leloux or Ken Wilber's work of the stages of development. And the strength of this blue security value or amber security value is it's good at taming the dangerous nature of the previous stage, the red impulsive stage. And, you know, I got to be honest, like I've seen enough kids sprain wrists, break ankles, lose teeth break arms on the stairs because some jerk behind them pushed them or was running and wasn't paying attention and their backpack fell off or some kid slams back. You know what I mean? If we're just talking about pure child safety, an order for like moving through the halls isn't a bad idea. However, like you said, if it's the kind of mindless automaton thing, the kind of green inclusion sensitivity value in me takes over of like, okay, no, I'm cool with the automaton thing if the students have spoken out about this and agreed that this is the best strategy for 
or what they want. If the students say, no, I want to know I'm safe walking up and down the stairs, and I don't have to worry about some jerk come, coming flying up behind me and both of us getting injured, then I'm good with that. But I guess it's, again, the how do we get to this idea of orderly, orderly moving through the hallways. Yeah, you want people to just be aware of their surroundings. And so if they are aware of their surroundings, whether or not they're walking up quietly and in line is less important than whether or not they're being safe. So, yeah, believe it though, it's it, it's um, interesting to go into that in minutia and see, like, yeah, even at this level, we kind of, like, feel that our back goes up a little bit when everyone's walking up in line. There's nothing really wrong with it. It's just that it doesn't quite sit with our current context, per se. But if you had a school that was, or had a lot of children who had issues with, as you described, running around and not particularly paying attention or being respectful or safe, this would seem like a very good strategy to, to ensure that. One thing I just would drop in here is that there, even though the school may have a security value, every person inside this school will have slightly different takes on that value. And a lot of younger children are kind of predating this security stage. And they're in a stage, I guess, in spiral dynamics that would be much more about their impulsivity. And so this kind of traditional security school would instill those values in them via this kind of method in the same way that medieval society attempted to instill those kind of values of tradition and hierarchy, duty and self-discipline for the good of the nations that were emerging. And something bigger than yourself. But this idea that we'll come back to because if I you will have younger children who are acting in this kind of like pre-security kind of value. And then you'll have this group of children that may be between the ages of 7 to 12 who are just prime for that security value. They're, they're ready, they're developmentally in a Piaget kind of way for that. And it's interesting that that is the age that we kind of have these primary schools at. So we've talked about how the students come into, into the classroom and into the school. Let's talk a little bit about the teachers rolling into the classroom now and teachers' preparation and their planning. So as the students are filing in in their orderly manner, teachers are prepared. There is a registration book and the textbook. Those things are on their desk and ready. And in the security value, you know, a lot of the decisions about what's happening in the classroom are largely informed by an authority. And oddly enough, the authority is often a textbook. And there's a real sense that the teacher has a duty to work their way through the textbook and do everything that's in there. Now, they, you'll definitely see a teacher at the door welcoming students, but a lot of the other teachers have been in the staff room, and they're making their way into the classroom. Now, I would kind of think in the like idealistic or imaginary version of this, you know, the teacher is already sitting in the classroom as the students are entering. But if we actually look at the experiences that you and I and many others have had, Teachers who kind of operate at the security value or even schools that operate at the security value, the teachers might, you know, be kind of rolling in five minutes later than the students because there is some of that trust that the students know to get their books out and there's a time to put their bags away. And, you know, the students have a transition time to get into the classroom. And there is just that expectation that the teacher trusts. They don't need to be there for that. You know what your duty is. You know what your, your, your roles are here. Yeah, and as you said, the teachers don't necessarily have a lot to prepare as the textbook is ready for them. So they can walk into the classroom a little bit after their students, knowing that those students can be trusted. It's again, this feedback loop of the duty and the self-discipline. It's like, I trust you. I know that you're going to come in. You're going to do the right thing. And the students do. And if they don't, of course, the teacher will employ some of the behavior management methods that we'll talk about a little bit later. But 
you know, by and large, the students will be given that duty or that task and they will receive that trust from their teacher. And this kind of works, but say in a 2019 context, just legally, duty of curse states that actually I probably can't turn up five minutes late to my class because especially in Britain, I know you said the same in Canada, something happens in that class and I was supposed to be there and I was down in the staff room having a chat. That's a really bad situation. Not least of all that I should have been there to prevent it happening, but also legally for everybody involved. Um, so th there's a little bit of that. If, if it is the case that um, it may be at one point was okay for teachers to leave a class for 10, 15 minutes to grab a, a cup of coffee or to do some photocopying or whatever it is or turn up a little bit late. Um, now, just because of the rules of the game, I don't think that's kind of seen as it's seen as allowed anymore, but yeah, if you can trust your kids, it's really good. You're just not allowed to do it. That doesn't make sense. I'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if the, if the baby in this is that the teachers can turn up, they haven't really got so much to do. So they're, they're kind of free and easy for, they never use that. Term. They're kind of, their duty is to be there in class to start the lesson so they can turn up. They're ready. The kids are ready. Everything's functioning uh, as it should. Everybody knows what they're doing. It's it's a baby in many many contexts. But what is there is there any is there anything in this that maybe isn't so good? No, I I would say teachers should be should be in the room. There should you know there should be trust that students fulfill their duties to get ready. But I think you can be in the room as a teacher while those duties are being fulfilled. To go back to the prep for just a moment and teachers' preparation and being ready. I think there is a bit of a spectrum here. And I think on one end of the spectrum, you have, as we're sort of saying, the teacher's manual or the textbook laying out day by day exactly what you need to do. And, you know, in 2019, in my school for my English classes, I've got a digital Unterricht assistant, a German translation roughly being like lesson assistant, where it has every page of the textbook. You click on sections of the textbook. There's audio files that I would need for some of the exercises. There's answer sheets. There's additional worksheets that I could print off. There's all these things. Like It's so insanely well laid out and so incredibly convenient for me as a teacher, which is mind-blowing, that I could just rock into any classroom unprepared and literally just like click stuff on this and it's up on the smart board. And essentially, don't tell my school this, but like I'm basically just a, I could be just a guy there pressing the buttons on this page on my tablet. And basically this textbook's doing all the work. Now that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is teacher discretion, being able to pull from a variety of resources and knowing what those learning objectives are. Um, so there, I guess, I don't know if I'm highlighting a baby or a bathwater here. I guess the baby you could say is we do want teachers with security about what to teach and to not have to reinvent the wheel constantly. But maybe a bit of the bathwater comes in here when we begin to look at the role of a teacher as an individual in relationship to that textbook. And sometimes in this security value or in a more traditional school, the teacher as an individual just kind of like, I have, like they become like the textbook becomes their actual boss. It's like, I have to get through these pages. You know, if the parents see blank pages in the workbook, they're going to think I haven't been doing my duty. I haven't been doing the teaching I need to do. So I think we don't want to make textbooks 
the bosses of schools, which is a bathwater in this situation. Yeah, in terms of that prep, clearly if you are coming in and you have not really needed to consider individuals in front of you and your preparation really involves opening up the textbook and working through it, no matter how good that textbook is, it's going to be a textbook. And this is where we said you can't solve the problems of the future by using the, you know, the steps that got you to where you are right now. And so, yeah, it solves that problem if I have students in front of me and I need to give them something to do. And this is the textbook and it's my Bible. But yeah, the, the, as we get into the other values of school, the opportunity and inclusion, and especially the integration, it will be like, no, these people in front of you will need more preparation from you to be able to meet their needs as a class, as individuals. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people would see very little prep. There's a, there's a baby for me. <laughs> but not if it doesn't meet the needs of the people in front of you. Yeah, it certainly can meet the teacher's needs or teacher's desire for an easier time. But it's not necessarily meeting the student's needs for their progression. No. And I think it would be very hard in, in the current era to argue that any preparation of a day's teaching that didn't take into account those humans in front of you would be a bathwater and uh, sorely lacking. And I know I'm jumping here. You did ask me, was there anything else to say about the um, supervision and stuff like that? Just to go back one step even further, when we're talking about students coming in in an orderly way, if we look to the security value, or as you were saying, like a more traditional value, not everybody would say this, but there is kind of that older Victorian idea of like children should be seen and not heard. And I did just want to throw that idea in there because I think that's an important one. I think from the security value, there are different beliefs about who and what a child is. And part of, I think, the belief is in response or a reflection back to that previous stage of that more impulsive person we were discussing. And I think the security, more traditional value kicks in and says, look, you can't be running around calling the shots, being this impulsive little jerk, disrupting everything that's going on here. You need to be able to like calm yourself down and be seen, do what you need to do, but not heard. And I, you know, I think when I think of some of the people who kind of operate from the security value, I think that actually takes some offense if I was like to directly say that. And understandably so, it sounds kind of disrespectful in 2019. But if you watch the behaviors and the actions of people, Although they might not say that or it might feel bad about that, I think there is deep down a bit of that operating system in terms of how you relate with children. I feel a little on edge saying that, but I think it's important to highlight that each of these values has some different conceptualizations of who and what a child is. Kind of what you're saying there, from your perspective, yeah, some of this puts you on edge. Some of this, a person may take offense if you say it to. However, if you were to say, look at these kids running around here, coming in the school every day, just not being able to walk safely or respect each other. What do they need? Like the answer for most people in 2019, no matter what our perspective is, the, the answer you would hear much more than others is they need a little bit of guidance, a little bit of discipline. They need to know how to walk safely or however you framed it, it would be the same idea that we want these kids to get upstairs safely and we're going to have to kind of police that or really like enforce that for it to happen with this particular group of students. The security mindset might say, yes, 
like no no dissonance in there, no question, like, yes, that's exactly what we need. Whereas someone who may be coming more from that inclusion value and they're maybe more relative in their kind of ideas of what is needed or, or right, that there's fewer, there's fewer blacks and whites or absolutes, they, they may still come to that similar conclusion that, hey, this is not safe, we got to do something about this, but they may have slightly more dissonance about like, how would I go about this? Or yeah, or just the ways each of these values go about the things would be different. All three might agree, yes, students need more adherence to some guidance or some rules. But perhaps at the security, the more traditional value, that just becomes like, we're going to put an adult, an extra adult in the hallway who is there as a visible reminder and can dish out the, the punishments and disciplines if people aren't following the rules. The opportunity value might lean towards something more like a house point system, a class point system, a losing of a privilege if you don't follow the rules, that kind of thing. And the inclusion value, yeah, as I was hinting earlier, like you might just sit down with everyone have a few whole class discussions, discuss this as a school. What, you know, what do you guys value? How do you want things to be in the hallways? Do you want people potentially hurting you or rushing, you know, and then like co-creating a plan together. So yeah, all three value systems can totally agree on something. It just might be the nuts and bolts or the how we make that happen that looks different between them. Yeah. And it's a good point that we should not forget the conceptions of childhood at each of these values. We all want the best for our kids. We all want the best for our students. But what best is and how to get it will be very different when you actually put that into words and actions. So moving on. So we talked about a little bit more of the minutiae of how kids maybe get to school and those parents at the start of the day. We're talking a lot about primary school here. So maybe only up to about 12, 13 years old, a little bit younger. Um, but we're talking about a lot of kids will come to school by themselves, even from fairly young ages. And I actually gave an example from Japanese school. They do the walking train to school. So even from the age of seven, they'll be walking together in a train that's highly organized that will take them to the school gates. And then they would probably come back home with a partner, or even by themselves from ages seven, eight. And just in case someone didn't catch that, when you say the train, like how many students in grade two are part of this train and you said like at first there is an adult to kind of like guide them and make sure they've got it but eventually they're going independently right they're going independently there are crossing guards at every major intersection or whatever but yeah the grade six kids will be leading all the way down to the grade ones towards the the back and there'll be often about 20 children in this walking train um walking through the streets in their shorts and little hats and uh safely navigating towards school and and generally walking really really sensibly there's you know people are people and the, you know there's some kids who are a little sillier than others there's some kids who are telling the kids to get in line and so on generally it functions really well as a way for these children to make the 10 minute or so walk to their school and it's a highly organized system very much in the in a traditional uh, kind of mindset um, and there's a lot of benefits from that a lot of positives of, the, of these students getting together and as you get older you're, you're taking more and more responsibility for leading the uh, smaller children towards school and then on the way home you navigate your own path home so we've talked about the students getting to school and we've mentioned that some of the parents will be there as well. And we might see parents outside socializing together outside the school gate. And 
this is a really beautiful thing that kind of strengthens the sense of a school community. Typically, the parents are in very close contact with each other, helping to inform each other about things that are going on and you know, inviting people to birthday parties and all this sort of stuff. Um, and if we look around the school, like parents often have roles like helping out in the library or helping out with lice checks or helping out with sort of like tasks that are needed in the school but might take say, a teacher away from their duty of carrying out the lessons. So we've seen the kids come to school. We see the parents outside. I guess I'm going to start with the parents first. You've mentioned the the baby or the good thing of like the uh, kids looking out for each other in the trains to get there. One of the babies here for me from the parent side is we do want to integrate parents into the school and give them a sense of belonging in the school culture in a meaningful way. And this is something that's important. You know, one of the criticisms of school is, you know, your child's at school for five, six, seven, eight hours a day, five days a week from anywhere from the ages of three to 18, five to 18, something like that. They're playing a huge role in the raising of these children. Parents don't need to be some separate entity not integrated into the system. I haven't really set you up for anything there, have I? All I would say is that this idea of having the student, uh, having the parents at the school gates, mingling, talking, it sets up a situation where there can be lots of good knowledge shared and lots of and the, and the community can become strengthened but of course the parents are still outside the gates and we're not quite at the stage where we're welcoming them in so the baby or the positive aspect is that you get this community building the bathwater might be actually do we really just want the parents outside the gates don't we want them in and i know some schools have experimented with ideas of having rooms and even coffee shop style places where parents can come in and talk or we'll invite them in of course for information sessions but on a day-to-day basis it still very much is in 2019 in in britain for example that the parents are at the gate but you know having a more seamless integration may be seen in 2019 as a, a healthier or a better way to build that community uh, rather, rather than keeping them at an arm's length. And one of the ways that the security value typically works is there is that real trust that the teacher knows best and the parents do feel that. And as long as the teacher is upholding their duties, there's very little criticism or anything like that or questioning of a teacher's methods or approach or judgment on something. Um, Where this creates a problem, where where I would say this creates a bit of the bathwater, is sometimes I liken it to the kind of Wizard of Oz effect. It's kind of like parents should receive as little information as possible about what we're doing. Now, I don't, no one would go as far to say, like, to keep them uninformed. The security value is able to reinforce some of its security by having that trust in teacher discernment, having trust that teachers are upholding their duties. And some of that security can begin to dwindle when parents are thoroughly informed about what's happening in the school, where criticisms or questions about perhaps better approaches or different approaches begin to creep in from the parent community, or if the parents believe there's maybe been some injustice or something that doesn't quite add up. And, you know, this is very much my take on it, and just having seen the way some of these things work. But when there isn't that open communication between the school and parents about the specifics of what's going on in their child's education, what tends to happen is the parents end up uniting 
and pushing back and revolting, and which ironically creates a very insecure, not secure situation in the school. Um, so again, that's very much my take on things, but at this security value, there isn't a lot of parent information nights. We started this episode talking about you having the writer's workshop evening with parents and informing them and kind of educating the parents that they could almost come in and kind of teach a lesson because they fully get what's going on. But at the security value, there's typically more the thing of, hey, I'm the parent. I don't need to be informed on every little piece of information that's going on. I, I, I trust that what you guys are doing is is what's best if you're upholding your duty to meet the needs of my kid, to prepare them for what they need to be prepared for. I think if we are looking back at a traditional school that had um, a traditional body of parents, they this kind of this is accepted. We won't get much information. We won't ask for much, but we will trust you. And there'll be the occasional thing, but mostly we won't know. That's very, very unlikely to happen in 2019. No matter who your body of parents is, they're going to be asking. They're going to be looking for things that are going well, and they'll want, they will want to know more in almost every context. One last thing I would drop in is that no matter how traditional your school is, it's 2019 and parents have cell phones and social media exists and parents will form groups. And so the extension of the parents standing at the gates talking is the social media. And just like talking at the gates can have its positive influence, it can also have negative. But with the social media aspect, that, neg that negativity can spread very quickly and things that possibly are not a huge issue or could be solved quickly with one or two comments conversations can spread like wildfire through these social media groups and it can actually cause a lot of tension. And I know a lot of schools are going through this right now, no matter how traditional or progressive they are, it's the same kind of issue. Incredible the power of a WhatsApp group in 2019 in terms of parents having a voice in a school, that's for sure. Yeah. And if you're a traditional school, the parents will have their opinions and those opinions may be very traditional or they may not be in alignment. But what we have here is another forum for that information to be spread. And regardless of the value your school is operating from, that information could be positive or negative. And so even a traditional school in 2019, a security-minded school would probably still have to address this issue. So I think we will need to wrap it up there, Rob. Yeah. Thank you for that discussion. Yeah, thanks. So in our next episode, we're going to move into the classroom and talk about some things like uniforms, which that might take up a full 45 minutes because that can be a very contentious issue. And we'll take a look at how the different values might look at a uniform, but why that's so important, especially as a signifier that you're probably looking at a security or more traditional school. And hopefully as well, get to talking about assemblies and um, what whole school events look like in the security value school and the babies and bathwaters of them. And some of that old teaching and learning that we love so much, Rob. Thank you, Brandon. Who knows? Thanks, Thanks Rob. Rob. Easy. Good time. We hope this episode has been interesting. If you want to connect, we're on Twitter. We're kind of building a community there. So far, it's kind of been sharing news stories that reinforce our narrative about the four values competing against one another in education. But let's see if we want to organize to do more than that there. Feel free to pass this episode on to others who give a damn about what's going on in education. From Brendan and myself, attention is a valuable thing these days. Thanks for having some of yours on what we're saying. Thank <laughs> you.